Hello and welcome to another edition of The Rating Room Revisited. Once again, we're going to go back in time to one of our earlier episodes. Jay, why don't you tell the listeners what I've got in store? Thanks Andy. After Sean Connery was in the spotlight last week, we are going to talk about the man who replaced him as 007, Jules Lazenby. But before we get into that, what did you think of the decision made by Connery to leave the James Bond role, Andy? So obviously we weren't around at the time. He, he made the initial decision after film number five, and uh, that was that was the late sixties. So you know I was fifteen years away from being born, and uh, I think you were still in nappies yourself. So you probably don't remember much. Um, but there was a lot of reasons muted as why he left the role. You know, was it the pressure? Was it the the fame? Was it his relationship behind the scenes? Was he getting a bit old? Um, I guess. I don't know if we really know the truth. We know some theories and we know what people have said in the past, but I would uh, I would say it's a shame because at that time he was James Bond. You know, the 60s were all about Sean Connery as Bond. Anyone who came in to take his place was always going to be compared to Connery. And even if they did a great job, were they going to be compared favourably? So it left whoever was to take his place in a bit of a tricky situation. I agree, and Connery is obviously the OG, as the the kids say these days. And I'm thinking back, would you rather have the pressure of helping to establish a new franchise or being the person after the original person? Because I think if you were, say, Roger Moore, I would say the pressure is a bit lighter than it was with, say, Jules Lazenby. You don't want to be the man straight after the original, do you? Yeah, I know what you mean, and I guess it's one of those things is, you you know, part one way of thinking is you're only as good as your last film. Was the quality dropping? Was the box office returns dropping? Was Were people getting a bit bored of the Spy franchise? Yeah, yeah. History has proven that not to be the case, because obviously we're still talking about it all these years later. But many things could have been discussed at the time, and maybe he just didn't want to be James Bond anymore. Maybe he just wanted to be Sean Connery or someone else. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Connery um, has said or has been alluded to um, over the years is he didn't want to be typecasted. So he did have some concerns about that. And I suppose it's a lot of, it's, it's the same feeling a lot of actors have when you think about actors that, say, play Doctor Who or might feature in a particular TV program, for example. They don't want to limit those career opportunities because if you're playing the same type of role all the time those future offers might always be very similar and some actors will want to kind of be diverse in terms of the roles that they want to play yeah absolutely i guess if you're playing the role of spy in every film that you do your next offer is going to be a spy film isn't it most most likely i guess a, a, a probably less dare i say less talented example would be someone like a danny dyer or a vinnie jones you know they all have to go into Cockney Hardman mode because that's all they ever play in roles. You can't imagine them being emotional or being in a romantic drama or anything like that. They're just Cockney wide boys, aren't they? And I'd feel bad comparing the likes of Connery to the, the likes of Dyer and Jones, but I hope you get my point. So Andy, that's quite a jump, jumping from the legendary Scottish actor Sean Connery to the I want to say likeable rogue, Danny Dyer. I am, I'm struggling there because I've not seen him in EastEnders because I don't watch soaps. But I have seen him in 
what's that football film? Football Hooligan. Is it Football, football Factory? Factory? Is it Football Factory, that one? Yeah, yeah. I watched that again recently. And there are some other films he's been in. So that, that is quite a big jump there. <laughs> Sean Connery might be jumping out of his grave, mate, and coming to pay you a visit with that. He's definitely spinning in his grave, that's for sure. But the, <laughs> it was the first example that came to mind, and I apologise to any Connery fans and friends out there that was not my intention to uh, <laughs> but, and also any friends and family of Danny Dyer you know I didn't mean it when I said less talent to you know go easy go easy governor <laughs> you slag let's get back to Bond and why Connery left the role and another thing that you you do see and hear is that there were and Andy kind of mentioned him with the relationship with Broccoli that there were some contract disputes as well um, at the time. And I know we did touch on this because originally, uh, was did Connery sign up for four or five Bond films originally? And I know he was unhappy with the level of pay because obviously it, it just spiralled out of control in terms of this franchise. So he did get a, a pay increase later on, but I do know that there were some disputes and I, I remember it's around as well some kind of profit sharing and we also discussed this Andy and I was it you only lived twice where there were some promotional issues as well I believe from memory that does ring a bell yeah I think the um the the hoopla around you only live twice was was massive there was kind of it was bond mania almost like in the to levels of beetle mania wasn't it and I think that as well as all the media commitments and uh, and everything like that just started to take its toll I think the profit sharing piece is interesting, isn't it? Because obviously we we discussed the box office returns in each of the episodes. They were pretty successful, has to be said. You know, John Connery's making this production company a lot of money, so it's only fair that he gets a slice of the pie. And maybe that slice wasn't quite big enough for him. Yeah, and I think if you, like you said there, if you're helping to establish a franchise, and it is, it's probably exceeding everyone's expectations, isn't it? I think it's only right that your contract is renegotiated as well because if you are on X amount of money for the next four or five films and they're just taking in loads of money like they did, it's only right that the the wealth is shared considering he is the, the face of James Bond, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. He's not he's not just Bond when he's in the film. He's Bond every day of his life when, when the hysteria was so massive. And I guess another thing to think about is so, you know, he'd, he'd done five films up to this point in a very short space of time, 1962 to 1967. So, you know, there's a lot of demands, both physically and mentally, of being James Bond for such a, a long such a long period of time during a short window, if that makes sense, because I guess the filming would have taken significant amount of, of his life. Yeah, it, it's very intense, isn't it? And um, in those days, I would imagine filming would probably be shorter than it is now, but it still takes a, a large toll on everyone. And obviously there's lots of on-location shots as well. I, I would, Andy, kind of expanding on that comment that you just made, is I do wish that going forward in the franchise that we could have something similar, where not necessarily, well, I, I would like to say a uh, film a year, but where they could do the the filming of the the Bond films like back to back, so you can enable them to come out every year instead of having the 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 gaps that we had with Daniel Craig. It would be nice to go back to those ones where they're they're more condensed, and you can get an actor to come in, commit, 
for a few years, do their, you know, their bit, and then you can roll out a film every 12 or 18 months, if possible. Yeah, I mean, for comparison, Connery's first five were in a five-year window. Craig's five were in a 15-year window. So there's uh, there's very different levels of commitment there. Um, but after You Only Live Twice, Connery was out and Lazenby was in. Although he only lasted the one film, it was quite a memorable one. Jay, what did you think of George Lazenby as James Bond? I personally like Lazenby. So people might go, you like Lazenby, but... If you listen to season one, you would know that I actually put Lazenby in last spot. But the rationale is, it's because he's only done one film. So I would personally have liked to have seen more Bond films with Lazenby in as James Bond. So some of the reasons why is Lazenby was physically fit and I think from memory did some kind of martial arts. So when you had his action sequences, they were very convincing. And then that helped make Bond and also you believe that he was a tough, capable agent. And whenever I think of convincing action scenes, Andy, I always remember that bit where they, they're they attacking the um, mountaintop um, base of Blofeld and they, they get off the helicopter and he does that slide in <laughs> like a proper 80s action. I know this wasn't the 80s, but that's 80s slide yeah. with the gun. ahead of his time, wasn't it? brilliant. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that is just brilliant, I think. But I do think as well, and I don't know what you know you think or other people think about this, because I know some people say Lazenby is a bit wooden, but I do think that he helped continue this Bond, suave, charming characteristics, which is obviously different when more takes over. So I do think he, he carries on that. They've not rebooted Bond. You know, later on, sometimes they kind of reboot Bond and change things up. I do think he's carried that over. But... He, I don't, it's not at the level of Connery. I think most people, well, I think pretty much everyone's going to agree with that. And I think my last point, Andy, before I pass over to you is, even though he did one film only, he's probably the most emotionally charged Bond up until Daniel Craig out of all the other Bond actors. Because even though he had one film and that, one film, you know, at the end of the season, I actually put it in second place, so it, it holds up brilliantly for me. In only that one film, he did show a lot of emotional depth as well, and that vulnerable side of him and human side. And I'm just thinking about, you know, where he's being chased and he finds Diana Rigg ice skating, and then the end up, you know, there's a snowstorm and they have to go in some kind of barn. And you could see him just like falling in love. And I know you get that with Daniel Craig twice, but otherwise, I don't think other Bond actors really had that. I tend to agree. I think it was it's a difficult road to tread because if he'd have just tried to play it the same way as Connery did, it wouldn't have worked because he's not Connery. So he had to go a different way with it. And I think the producers recognised that and they they made the film that they did accordingly. Um, so it ha- you have to take it in a different direction. You have to make the character evolve, and I think he really tried to do that. And I think the the love story, the marriage, and uh, the ultimate death of Tracy Bond, I think really helped the character evolve into a more rounded individual. So um, I'm glad that they went that way. Although I can understand people not necessarily liking it because he's not Connery. 
He's not. And it, it was, I think it was important, you know, that very first scene on the beach where he is essentially saving Tracy, um, obviously not Bond then. Um, Vicenza. Yeah. And um, he makes that comment to say, this didn't happen to the other guy or never happened to the other guy. I thought that was quite funny because you know it's still the same Bond, but obviously a different actor. Yeah, it's a good good way to introduce him as Bond. And so straight away you can kind of settle into it. So, yeah. yeah. Nice. Well, was there anything else you wanted to pick out, Andy, from your point of view in terms of what you thought Lazenby brought to Bond or what's your general feelings about Lazenby as Bond? I think... Apart from that he got some very bad career advice. He did get some very bad career advice. I believe he originally signed on for seven films and then jacked it in before the first one was even released. And that's a shame, really, because I think there was potential. Well, granted, he was a... Um, a very new actor. I think this was his first major role, wasn't it? Which um, is is a brave one to take on. But I think he did a fine job, to be honest. And I, w- I would have liked to have seen where James Bond would have gone in his hands over the coming films. Whether they would have done the same films but with Lazenby in place, or whether they would have been completely different films, I don't know. But it's it's interesting to think what could have been and um, I think it's a wasted opportunity. But for a, for a one-time deal, I think he did pretty well for himself. I agree. It's I don't want to say one-hit wonder, but you know, like, you see musical bands, and they have one, like, number one song, and then that's it. I think you've got to be thankful for that number one song, don't yeah, you? Yeah, if, if he was a, a Chesney Hawks type, he'd still be playing the butlin scene, wouldn't he? <laughs> they'd only want to hear the one song. They'd only want to play this one film. But he's got other hits in the locker as well. You just don't appreciate them as much. Yeah, and Andy, you know when, when we obviously started a podcast and we were going through, this was another film that I was looking forward to because I remember liking it originally and I've watched it a few times and obviously I said I ranked it second in the end. So obviously I loved it again. But it was nice just watching that one. And my wife hadn't seen this one before from memory as well. So it was nice that she got to saw. And it's a it's a film that ends um, on a sad note as well. Yeah, very different way to, to sign off, wasn't it? It was. And it's a shame. I know we talked about hypothetical scenarios throughout season one. About, oh, what about if this Bond actor played Bond in this film? And what about we slightly move these around? It's hard because you're taking away things, but I would have loved to see him in um, Diamonds Are Forever instead. It would, it would have been nice to continue the arc, wouldn't it? To see what life would have been like for Lazenby's Bond post-Tracy. Because Connery didn't really even make mention of, of his dead wife, did he? And trying to think back. You know that initial pre-title sequence where he's travelling the globe finding... Blofeld and then he kills the um he thinks it's Blofeld in the um the mud. I'm trying to think if he says anything then or not. But that's it, then it's kind of just tied, you know, just Yeah, this they just kind of kind lose of that story arc almost, don't they? Yeah. So Andy, is there anything else you want to mention about Lazenby before we kind of sign off and let the listeners get into um on a Majesty's Secret Service? No, I think like I said, it's a wasted opportunity for for everyone really to not have Lazenby in more Bond films but uh, listeners out there don't waste your opportunity to check out our classic content, our upcoming content which includes a few more of these revisited episodes over the coming weeks 
and then some brand new content coming in the middle of November. We've got some some new things coming your way. We've got some guests coming back onto the show at various times. Lots to look forward to over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, so thanks, Andy. And just to add, we've got some new guests as well. We've got some old guests, but new guests coming on. So that is all to come. Let's get back into it now. So this is Season 1, Episode 6 of The Rating Room. Hello and welcome to The Rating Room. My name is Jay. And I'm Andy. Here on The Rating Room, we're going to be talking movies and TV shows. This is our first season. We're going to be focusing on the James Bond franchise. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Episode 6 on a Majesty's Secret Service. Andy. So a quick summary of the movie. 007 and the adventurous Tracy DiVincenzo join forces to battle Spectre in the Swiss Alps this time. Uh, we've got Blofeld making another appearance, and it's his most, I would say, calamitous scheme yet. It's a germ warfare plot that could kill millions of people. Uh, Jay, what did you remember about this before you rewatched it recently? Yeah, I must admit, this was, from memory, this was one of my favourite Bond films, Andy. So I remember Bond getting married this time for real. I remembered that there were different actors for Blofeld and James Bond, obviously. The Louis Armstrong song as well, I did remember. A couple of other things as well. I remember that it was in the Alps and there was a mountain base, you know, in terms of the clinical research area. I remembered that as well. And also remembered that there was a number of good-looking ladies there, which obviously they are known as the Angels of Death in the film. I can't remember exactly what the name were for the, the group of ladies, but I remember that there was a nice selection of ladies there for Bond. Also remember the ending, because I think that's quite an um, impactful ending in terms of Bond as well. And also one of the things... I remember watching this as a kid and liking it and... I remember re-watching the movie a number of times as I'm growing up and thinking actually it's better than what a lot of people tend to think of, even though he's done one movie. I think it's actually a better better movie than what a lot of people give credit to. And I remember it's just, you know, in terms of talking about the, the wife kind of jumping ahead, I remember saying to the missus, oh, I'm looking forward to watching this one. You know, this is a, a really good Bond film and it's one that she's not watched before. How about you? Uh, so I was looking forward to watching it as well, but for different reasons. And, and mainly, I couldn't remember that much about it. I could remember that Bond got married again, uh, a proper wedding this time, not a arranged one. I remember Tracy dying. Spoiler alert for those who have not watched it yet. Big ending uh, with Tracy dying. And I also remember the ski chase scene, which we will dissect in a bit more detail later on but other than that i didn't remember too much about it uh, like you obviously i was looking forward to it because we've got new actors playing bond especially but blofeld kind of slipped my mind that it was a new actor but the way we've gone through the series it's, it's kind of been a new actor pretty much every film so far but having lazenby as bond i think was a very bold choice and uh, we'll we'll discuss lazenby in a bit more detail later on but yeah generally didn't remember too much ahead of time so i was looking at it with with really fresh eyes so a little bit of information about the film as we go along so the main villains of course blofeld uh, leader of spectre and we've also got irma bunt 
as well, who is the other villain. And from a Bond girl perspective, we've got Tracy DiVincenzo, uh, we've got Ruby, and we've got Nancy, who are amongst the angels of death. Brilliant, yeah. And in terms of theme songs, the actual theme song is On a Majesty's Secret Service by John Barry. The the Louis Armstrong, which, Andy, I think a lot of people actually associate with this movie, isn't an actual James Bond theme. It's a secondary theme, which I know we both know that. But that is um, a very good song in terms of we have all the time in the world. The, I think an interesting point, and we've both seen Bond 25, No Time to Die. And I wonder if other listeners have picked up this link as well, but you actually hear the instrumental version in the Bond 25 twice, but also the lyrical version at the very end. So I thought that was a nice little link, Andy, in terms of the, the end of the Daniel Craig era and kind of linking it back to the earlier Bond. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that before we move on. Yeah, I mean, episode 25 will be a very enjoyable one for sure, but uh, you're absolutely right. When I watched uh, Bond 25 recently, it brought back memories of of the song. So I knew the song f- was from the film, but I didn't really remember much about the film. And there's a few kind of callbacks, as it were, in that to, to previous Bond. So this, I thought, was a, was a nice touch, the usage of that song and the, the, the setting in terms of what's happening in On Our Majesty's Secret Service versus what's happening in No Time to Die, which we will get into. But I liked the, the symmetry between the two films. It was uh, was really, really quite clever, I thought. Yeah, definitely. So moving on, as we're doing with each of the, um, the the films, we're going to look at the opening credits. It's the pattern now, isn't it, Andy, in terms of the silhouettes of the ladies? We didn't have it initially, but now in the last few films and podcasts, you know, we've got this silhouettes of ladies in there. I personally like this because you had the hourglass as well in terms of the opening credits. And when me and um, the message were talking about this, it kind of symbolizes the the past in the passage of time between the, the previous Bond films and the latest one on the Majesty Secret Service. So I did like that. And also it's similar in terms of what Goldfinger did where this intro had snapshots of previous characters and scenes from the the previous film so I quite like that it was kind of bringing an end into the Sean Connery era um, which obviously does come back but at that point the producers didn't know so I like how they did that so you saw Honey Rider, Doctor No, Tatiana, Pussy Galore, Goldfinger, Thunderball there were bits in there of You Only Live Twice so I liked how it encompassed all the previous Bond films into this opening credits. Yeah it was uh, it was almost like previously on James Bond type moment is kind of here is the story so far there's a, a little bit of a refresher and i think as well with with bond being played by a new actor there's a there's this and there's a few other things that we'll talk about where you kind of needed to almost remind the audience that this is still a bond film and we are still talking about james bond even though you don't see sean connery so of course it was going to be well publicized that george Lazenby was taking over the role but i think just little moments like this just put you back in that bond mind frame so i think that was a that was a nice touch a few other things that we are monitoring along the way. Uh, so the body count, how many kills did James Bond make? In this film, it was five, which is the second lowest of the series so far. Not heavy on death, and I think that, that kind of matches the, the story-heavy element of the film, which we will obviously discuss, but it was it was less about the action, more about the story for me. There's really not many gadgets on display here. We've got a safe cracker and we've got a spy camera. Um, there's also... Q demonstrating a gadget to M, which is radioactive lint, like a homing device that's not used by Bond. I think it was just a a little way of showing that other things are being discussed and kind of exaggerating Q's role a little bit. So that was another gadget that we considered. Bond, James Bond, says it in every film, doesn't he? That's what we think. 
we know that not to be true but in this one he does say and quite quickly as well uh, less than four and a half minutes which i think will be the quickest we've had an introduction like that so far and of course other staples of the bond franchise the martini the hat throwing and the hat th uh, the hat wearing is a yes on all counts on those before we get into the the film in more detail what was your favorite scene from rewatching it my favorite scene and it was quite a long scene and it was the bit where bond has to escape from blofeld's base and then you've got the the, the ski chase then so they're going down the mountain and then he, he hits the the village there's a little festival isn't there going on at the bottom and I think this is one of the few times you see Bond panicking in terms of the chase. He's being hunted down relentlessly. And then he's on the side of the ice rink. He sees Tracy and Tracy actually helps him. And then it's just carrying on. Then you've got the car chase, which then transitions into the, the car race. And then they finally get out of the car race. And then there's heavy snow. And then they finally end up in the barn. I thought all of those I suppose I'm counting it as one scene, Andy, but it is a long scene, but it is it's from Bond escaping from Blofeld, ending up with Tracy Nibban. I just love that five, 10 minutes yeah. segment of the film. How about you? Completely agree. Exactly the same for me. It was the whole ski chase, car chase scenario. I think it was, uh, there were some silly moments, some, uh, you know, a little bit of dodgy moments here and there, but I think on the whole, very well done, really exciting action scenes. Almost, you would say, Typical James Bond, but, you know, classic James Bond. You know, the, the action uh, really came to the forefront there. So that was, uh, for me, a, a great scene. Let's continue further. So how many times did you reach for your phone while you were watching this? No times. It had my full attention. I nearly reached for it once just to do a bit of research about Jules Lazenby, but I chose not to do that, Andy. I was 100% focused. I really enjoyed the film, and it's a, it was a long film, but it, it did keep my attention. How about you? Just the once, and it was for research purposes because there's someone who appears in the film, and I had no idea of this person's name or what their actual role was, and I couldn't actually find the information. I think we're going to talk about it later on because um, your research methods are much better than mine. But at the time, it just stumped me as to who this was and what they were doing, and I had to look it up because it was frustrating me. But otherwise, yeah, full attention as well. This is the rating room. Let's give it a rating. What was your score out of 10? As you know, Andy, uh, I'm very generous in my scorings compared to you. Well, I'm, to be fair, it's only slightly out, aren't we, usually? We're only one or two digits out. But I have rated this one 8 out of 10 because it was one of my favourites, thinking back and re-watching the film again as part of this podcast series. It is still one of my favourites, so I gave it a strong 8 out of 10. How about you? Uh, this was close to an 8 for me, but I've given it 7 out of 10. There was, it was much more enjoyable than I remember. And, and I guess partly because I couldn't remember much about it first time round. Um, but also I had a, a feeling that Lazenby was p perhaps not as strong a Bond as he actually was. And I was toying with, there were certain things about the film that I thought, this is not right, it doesn't feel right. But then certain things I thought were absolutely excellent. And uh, it, it could have gone either way. But in the end, I think it it's one of the stronger bonds that we have watched so far uh, the reason i've gone for a seven i think there's still quite a gap between this and goldfinger which is dare i say the gold standard of bonds so far uh, so that's the reason for for seven but still high on the rankings 
a really, really solid effort. And the next part before we kind of get into some of the facts of the film is the, the standing item, the wife's verdict. This was an interesting one, Andy. So last episode, the last film, obviously the wife was quite negative about James Bond. I recall um, she said it was racist, sexist, chauvinistic. This week isn't any different. So <laughs> the, the wife's verdict was that Bond is an asshole, but he has some redeeming qualities at the end. Also, she queried, were the close-up shots really necessary during the ski chases? Which I have to agree. Those, she, she was saying, basically, you know, the kind of zoomed out shots were obviously, you know, super realistic. It was obviously, you know, ski chases. But when they zoomed in, it was evident that it was fake background. So she didn't really like those as well. And also the, <laughs> the safe cracking device, she said, was archaic and basically the film was all right i'm shrugging my shoulders she said it was all right as well but andy just before we kind of move on to the next bit i i must have to say and i haven't mentioned this to you actually that my one of my kids asked to watch james bond last week before we watched this one we were walking the dog and he turned around and said dad can i watch james bond with you i said yeah 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 we can watch james bond he hasn't watched any yet and then he said, when you're watching it, we like mommy. And I said, oh, we're going to watch it tonight. And he said, oh, how many Bond films is there? I said, it's 25. And you were like, 25? And I said, well, why don't you wait until like, we get to um, Daniel Craig films? You know, the modern. This is, you know, from the, the 60s. He's a 13-year-old boy. He might not really appreciate it. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to watch it. I'll come and watch it. Let me know when you watch it. Fast forward to the evening, Andy. I shout up to him. We're watching James Bond. Does he come down and watch it? What do you reckon? Uh, I'm going to say he didn't. There was No, he was too busy playing Minecraft. <laughs> so he still hasn't watched James Bond. I was like getting all emotional thinking, oh, this is like becoming a man. He's wanting to watch a bit more grown-up films. And then he just passes it up. But I think he's 13 years old. He's never watched any of the James Bond films. I personally think a good introduction for him would be Daniel Craig films. I don't know what your view is. I think it's a good introduction for most people who haven't seen a Bond film, I think, or those who may have, they know of the Bond films, but have a certain perception in their head about them. But maybe the next Bond, whoever he or she may be, maybe that is the Bond of the generation. So you'll somewhat gravitate towards whoever that is. And when he's doing a podcast of his own in 20 years time with his mate talking about Bonds 26 through 40 or whatever it is, They'll be doing the same sort of thing. Podcasts won't be a thing in 20 years, will they? Anyway, yeah, so we digress. But I just thought I mentioned it because I thought I nearly had Cassandre's verdict, but it didn't kind of work out, unfortunately. Very nearly a, a defining dad moment. <laughs> yes, nearly. Andy, is your missus kind of on board yet or is she still um, not partaking? No, she's not on board. She's a waste of time. Not even, you know, even entertaining the idea. The, the closest I've got is I got her to start watching Casino Royale with me. No, no luck so far. I'm not pressurizing my, my wife at all to do this, but there were times when I turned around and she was on her phone and I were like going, but how can you make the wife heard it if you're not watching it? It's one of those films that I can do both. I can multitask. I said, yeah, but you're going to miss out on Finn's. You know, when you come to the wife's verdict, it's going to be like, uh, but she, she's in there and she, you know, she has told me she's going to commit to the 25. She has told me though, she's looking forward to rewatching Pierce Brosnan because that is her favorite bond. So she is looking forward to getting to the nineties, would 90s, it be? Nineties yeah, and the Daniel Craig films. So she's looking forward to the modern ones and she hadn't seen this one before. 
so some of these films she hasn't seen so it's, it's quite good for her to be watching but she was reading some of our notes and she she was just muttering about how sexist he was and chauvinistic again just before we went live is this uh still talking about bond and not my note not talking that about me <laughs> just, just checking i don't want any any kind of libel feel free to uh, comment if you think that i am sexist or chauvinistic in any way and you know send your hate tweets to the usual address <laughs> and i'll be sure to respond accordingly but let's let's move on before I dig a hole for myself. Let's get some facts and figures about the film. So this is uh, the longest film of the series so far. Two hours, 22 minutes is the runtime. It's, uh, it's a bit of a slog if you're not a Bond fan, but I thought the time flew by. Personally, it didn't feel that long at all. Uh, released in 1969, so this is a two-year gap from the previous film, You Only Live Twice, which was released in 67. And the first one... And only one to be directed by Peter Hunt, Peter R. Hunt, to give him his full name. He worked on all the previous Bond films as either a, an editor on the first two or a second unit director on the subsequent three. But this is the first and only time he takes the lead chair as director. Yeah, thank you, Andy. I thought that was um, interesting that he's had some history with the, the previous films and the, the franchise and he got promoted to the main job. I thought that was um, good. I don't know why he didn't have it again, because this, as we both said, is a very good film. So the next bit, before we kind of um, dig deeper into um, the actual film, what we wanted to do, because this is obviously Jules Lazenby's one and only James Bond, we kind of wanted to just to dedicate a bit of the podcast onto Jules Lazenby. So as part of our research for the podcast, we pulled together some bits. So originally, Jules Lazenby was recruited to play Bond after Sean Connery retired. He actually had no prior acting film credits. He had only actually done adverts. I don't know if our older listeners might remember this. It's before my time, but I did YouTube it, Andy, to have a, have a look at it. Was um, He did a number of adverts for Fry's Chocolate Bars, which I love the Turkish delights, I must admit. He's also, Andy, the only Bon actor not to be born in the UK or Ireland. Interesting. As well, which I think is probably common knowledge, to be fair. But it's interesting that they do stick to UK or Ireland with Pierce Brosnan obviously being Irish. But I believe he grew up in the UK, but born in Ireland. It's interesting. Um, yeah, Australian, I believe, Lazenby, if I remember correctly. Quite a few interesting notes in terms of the research on, on Lazenby. Because, I mean, to your point, he had no prior acting experience, which is quite fascinating to be then cast in such a, a major role. Uh, so... So Broccoli met Lazenby for the first time while they were in the same barbers getting their hair cut. And Lazenby dressed like Bond for his screen test, which included a Rolex watch, and also a suit that was ordered by Sean Connery from Savile Row, but not collected. So uh, he is Bond dressed in Bond's clothing, quite literally. He was obviously offered then an audition, um, and at the audition he punched the stunt coordinator in the face, which actually impressed Broccoli, saying you know, his ability to display aggression was a positive in this case although i'm sure the stunt coordinator didn't necessarily agree yeah and i actually believe and you like this um i didn't i didn't write this down actually that this stunt coordinator was a wrestler i don't have his name or anything but apparently he was a wrestler with your ties with wrestling also lazenby announced it was no longer going to play bond actually before the release of you know a magic secret service which is quite a big thing really doesn't doesn't help does it with publicity if the new leading man then says this is his one and only film and also he was actually 
offered a contract for seven movies, which is a massive commitment. But his agent convinced him that the secret agent format was going to be outdated and they were just moving into the 70s. And those kind of attitudes would, you know, no longer fit in the um, in the 70s, which was a lot more relaxed. I thought that was interesting. Seven films is a massive commitment nowadays but even in those days obviously connery had done the the five films before seven even as you as we mentioned this one just a bit earlier we said there's two years um difference at the beginning there was obviously a year difference so i don't know if they were planning to get back to doing yearly james bonds or not but seven years is um it's a massive commitment that's quite a a long period of time and like you said if they if you think about the every two years then you're talking minimum 12 years of work but yeah, to your first point, I guess Bond ended before it began in terms of Lazenby. And later on in life, you know, late 70s, Broccoli claimed that casting Lazenby was the biggest mistake in 16 years. I think probably speaks more to the the person, George Lazenby, behind the camera as opposed to the performance of him as Bond, but that, that's just my opinion. But let's let's talk about our own opinions. What What do you think of Lazenby? I personally liked him. As I said at the beginning, it's um, one of my favourite films from memory in terms of the James Bond. And that wasn't just because of the film. It was because of George Lazenby. I thought he, he did well in the role. I personally thought it was a shame that we didn't see him do more Bond films. I thought he, he would have really grown into that role. He also um, did most of his stunts, Andy, um, and he was trained in martial arts. So he was able, as we kind of picked up in the previous episodes, it was really obvious when they used a, a stuntman, a, a double in Sean Connery bonds, you know, in terms of even the fight scenes. But George Lazenby, because he did most of his stunts, I felt that the fight scenes were more authentic as well. And even now, I think he's only an inch taller than Sean Connery. He, he's more bulkier, isn't he? He comes across more physical as well. So I think he's quite intimidating. And thinking about him compared to other Bonds, because Daniel Craig's quite bulky, isn't he, as well? I think Lazenby and bulky in terms of their build is very different to the other Bonds that we've, we've seen. And he actually um, broke his arm during this, you know, doing one of those stunts in this film as well. And also, I think, you know, I mentioned it earlier on, he, when he was running, you know, trying to escape from Blofeld's henchmen, was, you know, in the festival, he, he, he did seem quite scared as well. So I thought he, he made, brought more kind of fear and um, he was more vulnerable as well compared to what we've seen in Sean Connery. So I, obviously, we've got one more Connery film, then we go to Roger Moore. I, I, quite, I, li I like Roger Moore, but I personally would have liked to see another yeah, I would have liked to seen seven more Lazenby films, well, six more if he did a seven-year contract, personally. How about you? Yeah, I'd, I'd have liked to have seen where he took the character and kind of, because he didn't really get a chance to put his own stamp on things. I think this, his style was quite different in some ways to Connery. I think, were, like you said, the, the authenticity, I thought it brought somewhat of an edge to him. But then on the flip side, there was more of a softer side, and I don't know whether that was more around his performance or the story, but there was kind of those there was a bit more dimension to him you know that that kind of rugged edge that he had at times but also the softer side like you mentioned the the vulnerability and the and the fear the fight scenes were generally quite good i thought but his uppercut punches were something that i noticed and it was kind of like a, a windmill the way he just swung his arm and it, it was quite strange i thought you know not not that i'm a an expert in the art of boxing or anything but i thought his punches didn't look great but a lot of the fight scenes were quite good i thought there was a bit of Dare I say nervousness to him? There was, there was not quite the same swagger that 
that Connery had not quite the same confidence and the the one-liners didn't quite hit quite as well. I don't know whether that's simply an experience thing. If this is his first film, was first acting of any sort really, then I guess it's going to be difficult to have that that natural charisma. And also, you've got to remember that Connery has had five goes at this, so he'd he'd got the character nailed on by by this point. So to to compare the two is probably unfair. But I felt like he he just wasn't quite at the same level as Connery but did bring out some quite interesting qualities of his own. So uh, like you said, it's a shame we didn't get to see more of him just to see where the franchise would have gone. It might have been a completely different direction they took it in, but I guess we will never know. Yeah, Andy, just before we move on, can you imagine the pressure? So he's only done some adverts. This is his first film. The the first five films have been massive box office successes. The pressure that he must have been under would have been immense. Absolutely. And he puts out a film like that. It's, it's a big credit to the director, but also to him, it, it must have been a lot of pressure. Uh, I agree. And I think even if he was an experienced actor, I still think there'd be that element of pressure. So I think the inexperience only adds to that. And I think whenever... We, we, we see it in, in modern times where you know films are either remade or recast. There's always that comparison to what came before. And I think with a with a franchise like Bond, it doesn't matter who takes on the role... I think everyone is compared to Connery. And I think Connery did such a good job in, in the 60s, you know, establishing himself as the James Bond, that whoever was going to take it on, whether it was Lazenby or whether it was a different actor with much more experience, there's always going to be that comparison and there's always going to be those people who will dismiss it before even giving it a fair shot. So that's got to be quite difficult to take. I also wonder whether, because of his inexperience as an actor, that also led to his downfall a little bit in terms of his inexperience in the acting world as in you know how to behave behind the scenes how to interact with with crew and fellow actors etc so yeah a lot to take on and it's you know it's not like he's taking on a a junior position it's straight in at the deep end if ever there's an example of jumping in at the deep end it's take your first acting job ever and become james bond yeah definitely rather him than me i'll tell you that well I wouldn't mind a go if the if the money was right, but I, I don't think I would do it justice, in all honesty. Shall we move on to some of the talking points about the film itself? So we've mentioned, obviously, that George Lazenby is the new Bond. Uh, so we've got a new Blofeld as well as a new Bond. Telly Savalas taking on the role, replacing Donald Pleasance. Apparently the producers wanted a new version who would be more imposing, and I think they achieved that with Telly Savalas. He was a much more beefy figure, physically intimidating as well as kind of mentally intimidating because we didn't really see much of the Blofeld character in previous films but front and center in this one and a very intimidating physical presence I thought. The movie was shot in Switzerland, England and Portugal, premiered in December 1969 in London. In terms of the budget so we, we talked about the the box office returns of the previous ones and what we've seen in terms of the Majesty's Secret Service was that the budget was eight million and uh, and it did 82 million dollars at the box office. Another James Bond movie does make a profit and it was actually the highest grossing film in the UK that year but it was a big drop compared to You Only Live Twice which brought in 111 million dollars. It took less but it still made a significant profit. It also took less than the the previous three Bond films. So You Only Live Twice, Thunderbolt and Goldfinger. So in terms of box office returns, and I wonder how much of that was to do with Sean Connery not being in there with the publicity before that he's, you know, he's going to quit. I wonder if that just meant people just 
not stayed away because obviously a lot of people did watch it, but I wonder if that's what's caused a bit of the um, the drop in box office returns. Moving on, so we've added a, a new section. This is kind of goofs and continuity errors, which, you know, Andy is very good at picking these up. And we kind of pick these up usually in the episode as we kind of go on. But we just put in a, a new section at the beginning before we kind of actually start doing the observations of what we've noticed in the film. So the first one I picked up, Andy, was in the opening scene straight away, actually, is where the obviously Tracy's on the beach and so is bond and in some scenes when bond's looking out to tracy in the sea you can visibly see a ship in the background but then there's other shots where it's still that camera angle but the ship is no longer there so i don't know if your keen eye noticed that as well and then my the, the other one before you kind of pick tech over andy was i know you like cars i don't so you might pick this up again so the aston martin in terms of Bond's car, the tire screeching on sand, which I thought was interesting. Can they screech on sand? I don't know. But also they screech during the car chase when there's snow and ice. So there's a couple of things I've picked up. How about you? Uh, it's interesting. I, I didn't pick up on any of those, actually. So that's that's my poor vision, I guess, letting me down there. But a few other things to touch on. So uh, when Bond is talking to the Angels of Death, talking about his family crest and claims there are four gold balls on it however we've already seen the family crest earlier in the film and it only had three on it so uh somewhere along the way the crest either dropped a ball or he's gained an extra ball somewhere um but there's a there's a mismatch there another one is around radio communication so draco who is the father to tracy ends his radio conversation with over and out uh, which is a common error over means i'm finished but i'm expecting a reply out means I've finished and expect no reply. So over and out means he wants and doesn't want a reply. So it's kind of the, I guess it's the Schrodinger's cat of, of walkie-talkie <laughs> communication. Does he want a reply or not? I guess you'll never know. Brilliant. And I wonder if military people, whenever they hear over and out, they kind of just roll their eyes and just thinking that is really prevalent in certain, you know, in films. And also, Andy, going back to your gold balls, I just think of David Beckham when we talk about gold balls, isn't he? Doesn't he supposed to have a pair of golden balls or am I mistaking him for someone else? No, you are you are thinking of the, the correct set of balls there in Beckham. The last one I kind of picked up, and I'm sure that there's there's loads more continuity errors, is the the ending actually. Well, the ending of Blofeld is killed, air quotes, when he's thrown from the bobsleigh. But then in the initial shot, he's kind of hanging by his neck. And then it pans back to like Bond and the boss. So then it flashes back and you can see Blofeld is actually hanging by his armpit. So his like upper body is above the branch. And then in the last shot, he's hanging by the neck again. You kind of don't know. Is he dead? What's he doing? Was he climbing out but then slipped? What is he? So that's uh, obviously a mistake there. Is there anything you want to comment on the, the death of Blofeld, Andy, before we kind of move on? Again, that's another one I didn't pick up on. But yeah, clearly continuity error there because... There was no attempt to climb. He was done for. That's that's a that's a boo boo on someone's part. Now we're kind of going to um, dig a bit deeper in terms of the actual film, in terms of our observation. So starting with the opening scene at the beginning, in terms of the continuity bit. So this is the um, the scene in terms of you know the beach bond coming on the screen for the first time. So the the gun barrel shot at the start is the music slightly altered, isn't it, Andy? 
Yeah, I noticed this. Obviously, it's the, the very first thing you see is the, the famous gun barrel shot and, and Bond shooting at the camera and the blood coming down. The sound, it sounded weird, kind of an electronic sound. And I don't know if that was purposely done because obviously we're into a new age of Bond with a new a new actor and a, and a new di- director and a new direction, perhaps. But yeah, it felt out of place. I didn't particularly like it. it sounded wrong. So as Jay mentioned, we've got the beach scene coming up but in in the opening we we see bond in his car i believe he's driving down towards the beach but his face is partially hidden for quite a while so you kind of get the idea that it is bond but you don't see that it is a new bond at this stage so it's kind of building up that suspense and waiting for the introduction speaking of cars we we picked up on this point in previous films but there's a lot of speeding up of, of the action unnecessarily which i think is a little bit strange and also in in the fight scene as well with bond and the henchman i think there's there's a lot of camera cutting and speeding up and at times it just takes you out of the moment a little bit it's something we've seen from previous films so it's become a little bit of a signature of the bond film so far i'm not keen on that as i've mentioned in previous podcast episode also so just before we kind of enter the opening title sequence bond makes a little quip where he says this never happened to the other fella when tracy drives off and that is the only time i believe andy in an official james bond movie where a character breaks the fourth wall apparently he does in the never say never again film which we're not going to cover because it's not an official bond movie but yeah this is the only time that a um Bond actor breaks the fourth wall in the franchise. I thought that was a nice little nod. I like that. I, I quite liked it. Quite good. You could argue that maybe he's not talking about Bond, uh, Sean Connery as Bond. Maybe he's talking about one of his colleagues. So you could argue against it, but you know he's clearly talking about Sean Connery being Bond in the previous films. But I thought it was a a nice little introduction and you know a nice funny to start with. So we're kind of thinking he's going to continue in that same one liner manner that Bond had in the previous films. The, these next few scenes are going to take place in the casino, the hotel rooms and Draco's place. So the first thing I noticed, Andy, straight away was how ghastly that purple wallpaper was in the casino. It was horrible. Definitely something I wouldn't have in my house. But also, Bond is playing cards and he doesn't seem to be doing well, does he? The the character, and I don't know if he's ever introduced in that scene. I can't remember they actually name him. He seems to be winning. The, the bloke next to Bond seems to be doing very well for himself, whereas Bond is. He's not having a successful night, is he, at the old card game? doesn't seem to be. He just seems to be a participant, whereas doesn't have that confidence and that that good look on his side he just he's just there i think what was interesting uh, something i picked up on was he was sat in space number six and this is film number six and i wonder if that was pure coincidence or whether that was just a little nod to say here here is bond for number six so that was that was quite a nice little touch more speeding up of the fight scenes there's a fight scene in bond's hotel room and again it's you know the, the camera work is a little bit sped up at times and another thing not just here but kind of throughout the film dubbing is quite noticeable in a, in a lot of place for a, for not just for bond but for quite a few characters i thought i noticed that the dubbing was was prevalent throughout you're very very good at picking up um the dubbing in the previous films but even i noticed it in this one i felt it was heavily dubbed in parts one of the things that i liked andy as well was that we have all the time in the world 
that the instrumental bit was playing in the background when when Bond and Tracy were together. I like that. That happened um, throughout the movie. So I, I like that little uh, nod as well. And also Bond gives Tracy a bit of a slap as well when they're in the room together, aren't they? He does give her a bit of a slap and then there's a bit of slap and tickle, which, you know, typical Bond behaviour. Treat him mean, keep him keen and all that. A little bit later on, we've got the goon goes to the door of Bond's room and he overhears them talking. I guess they are still talking at this time. And he just leaves them to it. He knows they're in there. He can hear them, but he just leaves them to it. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> what to say. He, like, he was obviously fighting with him in the other room and then he, he kind of goes to recommence the fighting, but then hears what Bond is up to and thinks, oh, I'll wait until the morning. Yeah. I let him have a bit of fun, and then I, I pick him up in the morning. It's very, very polite. It was, yeah. Let's let's resume this this fight at a more reasonable time, sir. You continue your conversation. Actually, Andy, just just a thought. Just going back to the playing of cards. I wonder if that was a little nod again with him being not successful at cards because the Sean Connery version was good at cards. I don't know if that's anything or not. It's just something that occurred to me. The last bit I have for this section was dodgy special effects with Bond fighting outside of Draco's room. That was a um, dodgy sequence. Yeah, there's, there's a few a few dodgy sequences throughout, but yeah, that was one that I picked up on for sure. Like, like we said, it's not going to be a massive in-depth scene by scene in terms of like what we do with the podcast. So we now jump into MI6, and I, I, I wasn't the only one that thought of this, Andy, and I don't want to sound harsh. It's something the missus said as well. Miss Moneypenny seems to have aged a lot between You Only Live Twice and this movie, which obviously, you know, at the beginning, you said there was two years difference. As I was typing up the notes, I actually got a, a screenshot of Miss Moneypenny in You Only Live Twice and then a screenshot um, from of Miss Moneypenny from on the Magic Secret Service side by side on my nice widescreen monitor. And then I called the missus over and said, look, there is this because she thought it was a different actress at first. But having her hair up, I think, ages her. I don't know what you thought. When it first came on, knowing that there was two years difference, I thought she looked very different. I would tend to agree. I'm not sure if it was the hair being up or not, but yeah, there was time had passed. She'd had a tough assignment between movies, I think. Maybe when she went on location. Maybe that's it. Maybe the, the submarine life was not for her and it, uh, it affected her. But still beautiful as ever, just slightly more advanced in years than previously. And of course, we're speaking about Money Penny, so that you know there's going to be some flirting between her and, and Bond. Seems to go a little bit further this time, I thought. So Bond comes in and he gropes her ass, basically. There's no other way of putting it. And then later on, as he's leaving, gives her a kiss on the lips. That's not very office-appropriate behaviour, has to be said. Certainly wouldn't fly these days, but... I think it's the first time Bond and Moneypenny have actually had actual physical contact and in that manner that's, you know, that's firstly quite, dare I say, aggressive, but certainly assertive at the very least. I thought it was, that was quite a deviation from what we'd seen so far. I agree. It was definitely different compared to um, what we've seen in the first five films. I noticed that and then I tried to recall thinking, oh, have they actually kissed before? And I'm thinking... I think there might have been a peck on the cheek maybe in a previous film, but I think that's as most that it got. It was very um, flirty in, in the first five films, whereas this was definitely more full-on, as you kind of picked up on, Andy. In this scene as well, uh, Bond is removed from the Blofeld assignment, Operation Bedlam, as it's called. Clearly not happy about that, and goes outside and dictates his resignation letter to Miss Molly Manny. So uh, Bond's career as a secret agent is seemingly over for a brief period. 
Yeah, not a good start, is it, for old Lazenby? You know, he's, he's handing in his resignation um, straight away. I, I personally like this next bit, Andy, in terms of the where he goes to his office and he's clearing out his desk. We we get kind of like, um, I called it a, a callback. Um, I don't know if you called it something different or not or what the actual phrase would be. But we kind of see Honey Rider's knife and shells from Dr. No. We've got Red Grant's watch and the gold sovereigns as well from, from Russia with Love. We've also got the um, the rebreather from Thunderball as well. And when he's kind of clearing out his desk, you've got those little music kind of themes from those previous films as well. And I think it's kind of letting the audience know that, you know, this is the, the same bond that we've had in the previous films. So that he's got that connection with the other films. So I don't know if you picked up on those bits as well when you watched it, but I thought I liked that. I thought it's a nice little nod. Yes, yeah, so I really like that. And I like the, the opening credits as well. You've got that callback, like you said, and I guess it's the continuation of the story. And what, what I found quite interesting as well is that I think this will be the first time we've seen that Bond has an office of his own. So seeing him as a office worker as well as a secret agent. Clearly he's got admin to do <laughs> as well, but it's the first time we've seen him in an, in an office setting of his own, which I thought was, it took me a little bit by surprise really, because you don't think of Bond as a desk jockey, as it were. I mean, if, if there's any quiet periods, does he just sit there for weeks on then doing paperwork? That's a, that's a different film altogether, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he has to do a timesheet. Does he log always flexy or not? <laughs> Does he get time and a half for overtime? <laughs> he should get blooming um, hazard patiently. Yeah, I, I wonder. Yeah, because you, you do associate with Bond being very much a field agent. So as Andy mentioned, you know, he, he's resigned, it seems. Um, and then Bond is recalled to M's office and M informs him that his request has been granted which Bond isn't happy about and kind of um, goes out, talks to Miss Moneypenny, who actually um, turns out dictated that he had requested two weeks of leave instead. And I wonder, Andy, whether M kind of knew that Bond's intention was to kind of go off to do um, his own kind of mission or if he generally believed that he was going to go on leave for two weeks. I don't know if you had any thoughts of that. I wonder like, if he's thinking, oh, I'll give him two weeks off and he can kind of go off and um, it not be an official operation. He might make more progress. Yeah, I'd not really thought of it that way, but that's an interesting way of looking at it. I wondered if it was more he knew that Bond would react badly to be taken off, taken off the mission and almost the expected that he would go outside to Moneypenny and rant and rave and, in this case, want his resignation straight away, which is probably a bit of a, a rash decision. I would say, and I think obviously Moneypenny recognised that by changing it to two weeks of leave. And I think probably, I think it's more that M and Moneypenny know the the personality of Bond and they know how, that he sometimes just needs to cool down and he's a bit hot-headed. But no, it's an interesting thought. I'd not really thought of it that way before. I occasionally have them, Andy. It's, it's taken six episodes, but we're there. <laughs> Let's move on before Jay hands his resignation letter to our own Moneypenny. Uh, we then move on to Portugal. We've got a birthday party for Draco. Uh, we've got some bullfighting, uh, which I believe is the first time it appears in a Bond film. And I'm not sure if it appears again in any future films. I don't know, is the honest answer. I did try to research Andy, but I couldn't find any anything. There is some kind of scene in one of the Daniel Craig films, but I don't know if that's bullfighting or some kind of... Like a, like a rodeo type deal. 
Yes, I don't. Uh, there, there's something in a Daniel Craig film, which obviously we can cover when we um, get there. But from memory, I don't know if a bullfighting scene appears or not. Interesting. One to look out for in future episodes. Uh, we've also got Tracy at the party. She's very headstrong, quite a strong. You know, you get a sense that she's a very strong character at this point. She finds out about a deal that's been struck between her dad and Bond. Yeah, she's um, she's not happy, is she? She's more than a match for Bond. And I touched on this already, but again, we're, we're having the, um, we have all the time in the world playing, but this time we've got the vocals for the first time in this movie. So again, very much as that song is associated with those two characters. And then what we get is a little montage of Bond and Tracy. I'd say it's fall, the falling in love, aren't they? In terms of those little um, scenes as well. So I thought that was nice. Yeah, it's a good way to, to move the timeline on of the film. Uh, obviously, the idea is that Draco wants Tracy to be looked after, and but uh, Bond is a little bit hesitant at first. But it seems to be that they they naturally have feelings for each other, and I think the montage was a nice touch uh, with the song as well. So then it it quickly establishes that they are an item, or or at least you know they have those feelings for each other without dragging out the story, so we can get to the meat of the matter. We we move on to Switzerland next. Bond has gone to Bern. He's gone to investigate Gumbold's link to Blofeld. He searches the lawyer's office and he gets a, a safe cracking device. Now, the the crack the safe cracking device is lift is given to him by a crane. It's kind of raised up on this huge crane and it's in a I think it's in like a, a giant suitcase or something. It's, but it's a huge piece of machinery. One thing I thought of was didn't he have a safe cracking device in a previous film that didn't require a crane? Like it was a much smaller thing. Am I, or am I misremembering that? No, it was um, in the last one, You Only Live Twice. Do you remember where he goes to um, Osata's building headquarters? Yes. And, you know, before he, um, I think it's just as he's beaten up that wrestler that you mentioned, you know, in terms of the rock relative. Rock's granddad. Yes, that's it. It's quite a, quite a novel way to get the device up to him. It just seems like maybe technology's gone backwards in the two years between films, and uh, something for Q to get working on if his if his devices are now getting bigger rather than smaller. Yeah, surely when you modernise things, they do get smaller. But I I liked that he um he had it carried over from the bloke you know that you said about researching earlier. He's the one controlling the crane at the bottom. And I liked how it was like transported to the room, the lawyer's room, the office by Crane. I, I did like that. I thought that was quite funny. But my wife, um, she didn't like that at all. She just thought it was ridiculous saying everyone's going to see the Crane moving sort of over like yeah, the road and everything like that. And I just thought, oh. It's, um, it's quite Grand Theft Auto in a way. We're not going to be reviewing Grand Theft Auto, but I've been playing that recently. So it just came to mind. So whilst, whilst we're in the office, Bond is sat reading the Playboy. Uh, waiting for the safe cracking device to to finish and then as he's leaving he has got the centerfold ripped out and he's having a look this is the only film to feature the playboy magazine but one thing i, I did want to touch on is that clearly the centerfold is unclothed because it's playboy magazine it's not you know good housekeeping so there is technically nudity at this point but the question i have is is james bond a 14 year old boy and he, does he need something for his bedroom wall? Because for a grown man to be walking through the corridor staring at a naked picture of a lady 
that he's stolen from a Playboy magazine in someone's office seems very juvenile to me. He's obviously very horny, Andy, isn't he? Because, you know, he's, I would say he's madly in love or he's fallen in love and yet he's going to meet the angels of death later on. <laughs> and he's obviously wanting to keep Playboy. I, I personally, the whole Playboy thing didn't kind of sit right with me in terms of him reading it and then carrying it on down the corridor. Yes, you see some boobs as well in the, the movie um, as well, but there's actually a long history of James Bond with Playboy as well. So several of Ian Fleming's short stories were actually published by Playboy. I've not read any, any of these ones, actually. So you got the Hildebrand, Rarity, the property of a lady and also octopusy. So I don't know whether that was um, a bit of a nod to Ian Fleming in terms of the, the short stories or not. But also later on, there's also a number of Bond girls that are featured in Playboy as well. So we've got the, the actress that plays Honey Rider. We've got Jill St. John, Gloria Henry, and then Barbara Back are just some of the um, actresses. There, there are more um, Bond girls that have appeared in Playboy. I didn't know about the short stories in Playboy. I have read some of the uh, the short stories. A very good read. I'm sure I've got them around the house somewhere, but it's been a long time since I've read them. Uh, but I had no idea about the Playboy link. It's interesting. It's, a, it's an excuse to go out and buy some old Playboy magazines. Uh, yeah, I'll... I'll talk to my wife about that and say I need them for research purposes. Yeah, I'm sure I know what her reaction will be. But let's let's move on. We're back to London now. Uh, Bond's gone to meet Sir Hilary Bray. Hilary Bray is trying to claim the tit his title, and the title itself slips my mind, but it's basically, you know, a kind of a regal title based on family history and all, all this kind of stuff. So uh, because, uh, because Blofeld is trying to claim this title and Hilary, Hilary Bray has the means to kind of grant him this. Uh, he agrees to to help Bond. And I think the idea is that Bond is going to take the place of Hillary Bray, which we'll see shortly. So Bond then goes back to M uh, with this new information. And he wants permission to go after Blofeld again. And it's at this point, so is, they're not in the usual MI6 offices at this point. They're in a, a different location within London. And M's there with his butterfly collection. And Bond seems to have a little bit of knowledge about that as well. What, what did you make of this part? I thought it was interesting because Bond seems to have a, a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. He obviously did Oriental languages at Cambridge, I think we said in the last episode. And he also, um, and also in the um, one of the earlier episodes, he, he mentions the, um, was it gin or brandy? Do you remember when he goes for a meal and M's there? And he, Bond makes a comment. You have to listen to one of the early episodes. We, we do kind of touch on that. But interestingly... Yeah, he seems, he seems to know his wines and liquors and spirits and stuff, doesn't he? Maybe this is what he does when he's having his office time, Andy. That's what he does, just researches <laughs> loads of stuff about butterflies and drinks. He kind of scopes out what M likes, and then that's, that he does that kind of research. But yeah, interestingly, um, my nan actually collects butterflies as well, and she's still got, um, not pictures, but framed butterflies on a wall um, in a house. So yeah, a little nod there. Obviously, I relate my granddad to these podcasts quite a bit, and that is my nan now getting involved. Also, I, I like this bit as well, Andy, and you know, you would have picked on, you know, picked this up as well. That Sir Hilary Bray confirms that the motto on Bond's family crest is "The world is not enough." I like that little nod. Yep, I like that too. I, I, I did look this up afterwards because um, I, I liked the uh, the nod to it, and the the film was obviously taken 
from the family crest, so so the film with Pierce Brosnan. I did wonder whether it was from a book title or not, but no, the the film is purely based on this on this family crest. I think it's some thirty years afterwards as well. I did the same in terms of a bit of research when I, I did that because I thought, oh, is is there a book Ken on that? And there wasn't. I know that they obviously like to try to tie in Bond actors for seven films, but surely they weren't planning thirty years in advance and naming a future Bond film. And um, the world is not enough. So I like that the the future nod to this kind of family quest. We now leave London and we're back in Switzerland. This frustrated me, Andy. This did get on my nerves a little bit. So Lazenbury's voice is dubbed by George Baker, who is the actor who was playing Sir Hilary Bray back in London. So George Baker, he actually also appeared in You Only Live Twice. He is one of the uncredited NASA engineers. And so kind of, um, you know, a lot of these actors or actresses have appeared in multiple films. So I did quite like that. And he also comes back to, in a future film as well, The Spy Who Loved Me. But he... I personally associate George Baker with Inspector Wexford from the Ruth Rendell Mysteries, which any of our UK listeners who are probably in the 40s or above, maybe 30s, depending on what Andy's going to say, will remember him from um, in terms of the Ruth Rendell Mysteries. But he also played Tiberius in I, Claudia. So he is a famous actor, but I, I thought it was funny that George Lazenby's voice is being dubbed by another actor that appeared in the, the movie. And George Lazenby is, James Bond is basically using Sir Hillary's character as cover, but they've used the voice of the, the actor to do that. Because there's one bit later on where he's basically talking, his, his voice is being dubbed and then something happens and then he's just talking back in you know his australian accent again i just thought well that was weird i don't know if you picked up on the whole dubbing because i know you're good at the old dubbing yeah. but i just thought well, that was a bit weird the the dubbing did bother me and yeah the the fact that we know that bond is pretending to be bray and if that means you have to change your voice accordingly then i can understand him putting on an accent but in what world would you use the actual voice of the man you're trying to be? It does. It doesn't make sense. So yeah, it was very, very strange. And to your earlier point, I am in my thirties and I don't remember him from the Ruth Rendell mysteries. Although I, did, I have heard of the show. Sorry, older listeners only for that one. I think. <laughs> so we mentioned we're well. We're on our way to Switzerland at this point, and he's in the helicopter, and the Bond is talking about the the various things that about the facility that he's going to. Um, and one of the things they mention is that it's. It's being used to find cures for allergies. And the the pilot, I think it is talking about, reels off a list of allergies. I think hay fever might be one of them. I think there may be one or two others known allergies. But one of the allergies, he says, is not eating meat, which I thought was a, a very bizarre thing to say. Um, and I wonder if back in 69, vegetarianism was considered like the work of the devil, like a, an allergy for for being vegetarian. Very, very strange thing to say, I think. Yeah, that, that was a bit weird, Andy. So uh, apologies to any vegetarians or vegans out there offended by, by what I've just said, but I'm just repeating what was told to Mr. Bond in the helicopter. He gets to the facility, settles in quite nicely, is unpacking his stuff, and he's got a kilt, which we see him in for the first and last time, I believe. So a little nod to his Scottish roots. And I don't know if we wrote this down in the notes anywhere, 
but it, it comes to mind that he's referred to in this film and possibly others as well as an Englishman, whereas obviously a kilt is very much a Scottish garment. So there's a little bit of inconsistency there. Very, very odd, I thought. And despite the kilt, or in, because of the kilt, he's in his element. There's 12 beautiful young women from around the world who will later be find out are the angels of death. And there's there's a part where he's he's sat at the he sat at the dinner table, and one of the the ladies I think writes writes something on in lipstick on his thigh, and um, I think it's Irma says it. You're right, Mister Bond, and he says he's experiencing a slight stiffness, which is a, a nice little line, yeah, a little bit a little bit juvenile, I think. <laughs> I laughed at this because I thought it was funny. And my wife actually turned around and just said, I was juvenile. She's correct. <laughs> I, I just thought it was funny that because um, he's just got all these 12 beautiful women and um, Irma um, there. And the, the, the little the little quote there, that slight stiffness just, just made me laugh. I know, um, Andy, we've discussed this in, you know, before we went live, but and I'm sure a lot of people that uh, if people are following us and re-watching the films as we are re-watching this, they would have picked up on this as well. So Hillary goes to meet Blofeld, but Blofeld doesn't recognize Bond. And, you know, we've both discussed this. So Bond hasn't had any surgery. He, you know, in the previous film, you know, Blofeld has said, you know, you're dead. James Bond is dead. He's on the front page. How does Blofeld not recognize James Bond? in this it, it just doesn't sit right and you know doing a bit of research andy apparently in the original script to help the audience understand that this is the same james bond that was in the first five films in the original script james bond actually underwent plastic surgery and then they, that was kind of explaining why the james bond character looks different to the previous five films but they actually knocked that on the head and didn't include that in the the movie so i wonder whether that's a bit of a legacy thing there i personally don't understand how when they filmed that scene they just didn't pick it up especially as you said earlier that the director worked on all the other films in some capacity it just doesn't sit right. And I know we discussed that so i don't know if there's anything you want to kind of share you know with the audience about this particular point it, it just the same it baffled me you know bond knows who blofeld is and he doesn't hide that fact but he's pretending to be bray but blofeld knows who bond is this is you know it's not like they've met for the first time i understand that there's different actors playing both parts but in the bond universe it's bond who knows blofeld and it's blofeld who knows bond but in this scene blofeld doesn't know that it's bond no sense in that at all no and i think out of the six films that we've seen so far that is the the main point that is going to grate on me <laughs> because it's just, it's such a fundamental thing, isn't it? That particular thing that, you know, how he doesn't recognize him. It's just, it's such, um, I don't even know if you call it a continuity error. It, it's, it's just such a, a glaring mistake. I mean, in terms of the next couple of bits, Andy, so the thing that I picked up on was that, Bond is basically in his hotel room now. He, you know, as you mentioned, Ruby has wrote something on James Bond in the fire, which we find out when he gets back to the room that it's the number eight. So Ruby's in number eight. Bond, you know, you see him at his desk and you, you can kind of see the itch, isn't it? He, he's wanting to get out of his room and he manages to get out of the room, but he basically 
risk the whole mission to go and meet Ruby in room eight just for a bit of hanky panky. And then Bond then, you know, does the deed, comes back to his room. He's kind of like impressed with himself, you know, straightening himself up in the mirror. And then we see Nancy come in in Bond's, well, we see Nancy's already in the room and she appears in the background. And then Bond just uses the same chat-up lines on both girls. And my wife was muttering in the background at this bit about him being <laughs> sexist and a pig and he must be riddled with STIs, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, Andy, I don't know what you thought of that particular bit or there's anything, you know, you want to add before we move on. I mean, it's a bit of a, a bit of risk, especially since we found out earlier he's in love with Tracy. So uh, clearly his, his feelings are somewhat limited. But yeah, I, I don't consider it sexist or chauvinistic to use the same chat line it's actually pretty smooth you know i'm i wish i could do the same uh but i can't i can't get lines to work on one one girl i mean i'm married now so it doesn't matter but you know back in the day when i was allowed to speak to women i could i could never get the chat lines to work on one but he's he's managed to work the, the same charm on on both women within hours of each other that's uh that's a smooth operator right there and the next night he's back in her room again he's back to ruby this time the voice, the dubbing, the acting, it's its off. It, it's very, very strange. There's a part where he's actually knocked out and you can still be heard talking for a small period of time. So, yeah, there's definitely some editing flaws there. Uh, later on, we get the first ski chase of the Bond franchise. So there's no skiing that Sean Connery appears in. Maybe he just can't ski or he doesn't want to participate in the ski scenes. But I, I always found that skiing was quite a staple of the Bond films and I think that's backed up with the fact that there are seven films that have a ski chase of some sort this is the first one of those seven and we we've touched on this earlier and we've touched on it in previous episodes as well some of the special effects very very dodgy you know in terms of the ski chase scene I know you said this is kind of in a lot of the James Bond films and I were talking about this movie with the missus and she said oh I remember watching this one because of the ski chase scene and then I said, well, you know, the ski chase scenes in a lot of Bond films. And then it turns out, no, she hadn't actually seen this one. I think from memory, is it Roger Moore has quite a few ski chase scenes in the films? We have to see when we get to him. There's one that comes to mind of Roger Moore's uh, that's quite epic. Think, yeah, which definitely. We'll, we'll get on in a few episodes time with the, with the parachute. Yeah, brilliant. That is. Yeah, so um, kind of carrying on um, from where we are. Driving in the snow, there's zero visibility in, you know, this bit. You've got Bond actually reaching out, trying to wipe the snow off. But she's still driving. She, she does stop eventually, but, she's, you know, she's doing really well, you know, not to hit anything with zero visibility. Um, and I know you kind of commented on this, um, Andy, when we were talking before, and that Tracy is an excellent stock car driver. Um, she would do very well in um, stock cars. I thought, you know, we both said this is part of our favorite scenes in terms of the, the car chase and everything. So that's good. And another thing, you know, in terms of when they're, when they're at the barn, Bond tells Tracy he loves her. And I think this is the first time that he generally says it and means it. Because obviously in You Only Live Twice, he, he has the code, code word, doesn't he? Code phrase where he says like, I love you. And he says it, you know, at the, the sumo bit wrestling and later on. But I think this is generally the the first and only time at this point um, that he, he actually means it. Also as well, you know, the next morning, Bond and Tracy have gone, but Blofeld and the henchmen manage obviously to track him down to the bar, but they've already gone. And then, you know, a ski chase happens again. And one thing 
I thought of there was where, you know, Bond and Tracy are going, you know, they go through the avalanche danger area, but Blofeld just sends three, three of his men just to chase, but then sets off the um, avalanche. So I suppose henchmen are quite easily replaced. He has no problems sending his men off to die, does he? No, indeed. Probably gets them from uh, henchmen R us, buys them in bulk. Reference there to a, to a podcast that you don't listen to. <laughs> that maybe none of our other listeners do, but yeah, that's just a, an inside joke that probably only I will understand. But yeah, let's, let's carry on anyway. So um, later on, Bond goes rogue and he enlists the help of Draco to destroy the Blofeld compound and to save Tracy. Blofeld, this, this is something I noticed and it was really off-putting. He holds his cigarettes very, very strangely. Now, this is audio only, so I can't demonstrate to our listeners how he does this. And I'm not a smoker myself, so maybe maybe I've got this wrong. But, you know, whenever I see people smoke, they tend to hold the cigarette out between their two fingers, like perpendicular to said fingers. Blofeld, he seems to hold them almost like he's holding a wine glass or a brandy glass. That's how I, I can best describe it. But uh, yeah, just a very, very strange visual in terms of how he holds his cigarettes. But he's Blofeld. He can do whatever he wants. I'm not going to argue with him. Uh, later on, Bond is chasing Blofeld through the facility. And bear in mind, this is James Bond, you know, licensed to kill, secret agent. And he's shooting at him, and he's shooting at him, and he's shooting at him, and he misses every time. I didn't count how many shots. I reckon there must have been about 20. But he just kept shooting and kept missing. This, this is probably why the kill count is so low for this film, because he just can't hit his target. But I thought that was a very un-Bond-like manoeuvre by Bond to, to just be a terrible shot in this, in this part of the film. Uh, one more point from me on this part. There's, there's a clip. Bond is jumping out the helicopter, and he slides down this walkway kind of on his front, on his chest, while shooting his gun. I really liked this. I thought it was quite a cool, almost a computer game style special move sort of thing. It was, it was a really cool way of continuing. Really liked it. Quite, you know, upped the cool factor for him for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought that bit where he was jumping and sliding down was really good. Going back, Andy, in terms of the, the cigarette bit, when I saw, when I was watching this and saw Blofeld holding the cigarette, how I visioned that was basically if you give a cigarette to like a five-year-old and they're kind of just like holding it randomly because they don't know what to do. It's just weird how he was he was holding it. it I suppose, like you said, it, it was um, supposedly looking cool or something, but it, it didn't work for me. Carrying on then, so Bond's just on his dramatic entrance there by jumping out the helicopter and then sliding down. We also find Tracy, so they managed to save Tracy, but then Draco, her dad, just punches Tracy to get hold, you know, to get on the helicopter, which it seems very drastic. And me and the missus kind of double took and we looked at each other when that happened. <laughs> you know, that's a bit over the top. Tries to get in a helicopter by using, you know, some words, some verbals. And then, you know, she says no. And then he just wallops the one. Not much patience there. That escalated quickly. The words didn't work. So a punch straight to the face should do the <laughs> trick. That's the, that's the obvious step two in that scenario, isn't it? I, I like this bit. So... We've now got Bond in pursuit of Blofeld and Blofeld um, manages to get in a bobsleigh. So we've got a, a bobsleigh chase um, and then Bond jumps in the bobsleigh. So I like that. And obviously it ends with the bit that we said earlier on in terms of the, the continuity error where he, he dies, Blofeld. And then we've got the happy um, wedding, Andy. And for me, I, I thought this, this felt, I can understand 
why they did it because you don't really see friends of Bond. So we've got at the wedding, we've got Miss Money, Penny, and Q. I didn't think that kind of sat right because obviously they all work for MI6, you know, intelligence agency. But Draco, as we find out at the beginning of the film, he's um, like the head of a crime syndicate. Would they really go to the wedding of one of their agents? I don't know. I can understand, you know, like I said, Bond, you don't see him have friends. So, you know, in terms of any kind of dialogue between Bond and his side, the, the, the wedding, but it, it didn't sit right with me in terms of M being there. No, it's a strange one. Yeah, there seems to be a conflict of interest there. Um, also as well, like, I guess when you've got M and Moneypenny and Q and Bond and possibly other MI6 agents unnamed as wedding guests, is that not a security risk, having so many high-profile people all in one place? So, yeah, really taking a risk for this woman. You must really love her. That's that's all I can say for that. And the, you, you mentioned, obviously, Drake, uh, Draco, I call him Draco, Draco, excuse me, is in a crime syndicate. Um, and there's a, there's a nice little scene where he's having a chat with M. And M mentions uh, November 1964, the bullying job, which uh, I thought straight away, oh, is that a nod to Goldfinger? Is is Draco one of the potential benefactors of that that gold heist? Or has he got gold at Fort Knox? I don't know if that was just a throwaway line, just as a nod back to the previous film, or whether it was a genuine uh, link from from this film to Goldfinger for Draco, but I thought that was a nice, nice touch. And uh, we, we're getting to, to the end of the film now. Bond throws his hat to Miss Moneypenny, um, which is a little homage to his hat thrower MI6 headquarters at the hat stand. So that's kind of also, I guess, a way of um, tying in with the throwing of the bouquet. Maybe that was a, a, a double meaning there. And they live happily ever after. They drive off into the sunset to live out their married life as man and wife for many, many years to come. Only that's not exactly what happens because Irma Bunt, she's still on the scene. Uh, she is chasing down Bond and, and Tracy in their wedding car. Shots are fired and Tracy sadly dies as the final scene of the film. So very, very strange and quite quite a, an emotional ending for, for the Bond film. You know, the previous five He's normally getting his uh, his wicked way with the the lady, and you know, very much a happy ending in the first five, in in many senses of the word. But this time round, not so much. As is it, yeah, I agree. It it was very it was very sad the ending, and usually how we you know usually the Bond films finish with a dinghy or a rescue boat or something with just Bond and the um the Bond girl. This is obviously very different. Yeah, very very sad ending. Uh, to you know, so it's a very different direction he's taken bonding, and the the ending is a very different direction from what we normally see. And uh, in real life, the actress who played Irma, I believe, passed away not long after the film was released. So that's um, another sad note. But in in real life, this time to bring this part of the podcast and indeed the movie to a close. You know, in terms of if the ever finished doing a James Bond franchise, Andy, I personally would like to see. Um, the Bond franchise end a similar scene, but where they just drive off happily ever after. Kind of a nod back to this film, but Bond is happy. And, you know, if they ever, I don't know if they ever finish the franchise or they're going to just keep it going for years and years and years. But if they ever do, I think that'd be a nice little ending. He gets his happy ending and it's a, like a little nod back to this film. Very interesting. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't be against that. I guess 
actions of other films may or may not dictate whether that's possible but it would yeah it's, it would be good to kind of see bond get that retirement get, you know put all the missions behind him and live in retirement happily ever after but whether a man like james bond ever gets to do that i guess is to be determined so yeah as andy said that is the the film now so some of the other bits that we do you know our regular listeners will know is the one-liners or quotes that we kind of pick out from the movie so andy i'm just going to go first and that's already mentioned this so this is pretty much straight away bond breaking the fourth wall and he says this never happened to the other fella nice nice little nod to the previous films there's a nice scene between bond and q q says to james look james i know that we haven't exactly always seen well anyway don't forget if there's anything you ever need and Bond's quite witty replies, thank you, Q, but this time I've got the gadgets. I don't know how to use them. Yeah, that's nice, that. So another one. So this is a one-liner, so not a quote. So this is just when one of the henchmen falls into the giant snow plower, you know, during the chase, and then Bond just says, he had a lot of guts. I liked that one. That was, that was one of his better lines in the movie. Uh, there's a bit of dialogue between Bond and Tracy. Uh, Tracy begins... Why do you persist in rescuing me, Mr. Bond? It's becoming quite a habit, isn't it, Contessa Teresa? Uh, Teresa was a saint. I'm known as Tracy. Well, Tracy, next time play it safe and stand on five. People who want to stay alive, play it safe. Please stay alive, at least for tonight. Yeah, that's a, a nice little bit of dialogue between Bond and his future wife. So the next bit, before we move on to the quiz, is the, the book versus movie differences. As we said earlier, this film actually stays true to the book quite a lot whereas in you only live twice as we covered in the previous podcast um they changed a lot of the movie to to the book so some of the differences though we have picked out some of the differences so we've got five differences that we've picked out so in the book andy the the order in which bond encounters tracy is reversed so in the novel he meets her actually in a casino for the first time where you know he continues and pays off her you know her debt like he does in the um the movie but then she actually tries to drown herself the next day so you know the order does change there but both parts are still in the, the movie and in the novel bond actually quits mi6 because he thinks operation bedlam is a waste of time Whereas obviously in the film, he, he quits because he gets taken off the case and wants to kind of continue that as a rogue agent as he's got those two weeks leave. Yeah, interesting. A few more points as well. So in the film, we've got Bunt who works for Blofeld. Blofeld is, is merely her boss. But in the books, Bunt is Blofeld's wife. There's a slight difference in relationship there. Another thing in the book, Bond starts tricking Bunt into thinking she's a duchess. Whereas in the film, Bond simply tells her that her name comes from a nautical word word for the baggy, swollen part of a sail, um, which I thought was a, was a little bit of a, a harsh thing to say to a, a lovely young lady such as Irma Bunt. And the final point is around Blofeld himself in terms of his appearance. So in the film, he's bold and muscular. In the book, he's described as having long silver hair and being overweight. So very different uh, physical appearances between book and film. Yeah, Andy, before we kind of move on to the quiz, what did you think in terms of the casting of Blofeld? Because obviously in You Only Live, you only live Twice, he is obviously disfigured, isn't he, in terms of he's, he's got a facial um, injury um, with one of his eyes and skin. But he's also, he looks quite 
fragile, I would say. Whereas obviously you just said here, this version of Blofeld is um, quite muscular and um, he's obviously, he's bald still, but he's, I would say he's more of a match with the more physical Lazenby. I don't know if you've got a view on this before we kind of move on to the quiz. I think in, in this, he could almost play the part of a henchman because he can handle himself. Whereas so far, Blofeld has very much been behind the scenes pulling the strings. And in some cases, literally, you know, because we, you know, there's some films where we don't actually see his face. We just know that he's in the room or we see his, his arm or his lower body, you know, just, just knowing that he's there, but never actually know his true identity. So he kind of goes from, from almost a puppet master type role in the Connery films to this as a, someone who only leads from, from example, but but you know kind of he can do it himself as well he's uh, kind of henchman slash villain all in one it'd be interesting to see whether any listeners have a preference we we are obviously talking about the rankings in a few minutes you know does anyone out there um, who's listening to the podcast have a view in terms of the the differences with blowfell just just let us know on our social medias so andy the quiz now so this is one of my favorite bits where i try to trip you up on the questions so this is your weekly attempt at knocking my confidence <laughs> prevail at the end in most cases yes you do you have a very good success rate so again you know just for the listeners that might have not tuned in before i'm going to say four statements two of these are correct and two of these are false so i is going to to try to guess the two correct statements. So are you ready, Andy? Okay. As usual, I will say all four statements and you can either give me your answer after each one or at the end. If you need me to repeat any, just let me know. So the first statement. In the original take of the final scene, Bond cried, but this was reshot as a director said that Bond doesn't cry. Would you like me to move on to the next one? Okay, yeah, let's go to the next one. So the second statement, this is one of the few times that Q calls Bond by his first name. The next one, Timothy Dalton and Roger Moore were both offered the role of James Bond in a, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but both turned it down. And the last one, my granddad helped to build Piz Gloria when he was working in Switzerland. So Piz Gloria is the, the, the complex on top of the mountain. For anyone that didn't kind of catch the name in the film. So Andy, do you want me to repeat any of them? Are you happy just to um, tell me which ones are false or correct? I'm happy. I'm confident in one of the answers being incorrect. And that is your villainous grandfather who lies every week. He comes onto this show. He makes stuff up trying to big up his part he's he's probably <laughs> the ultimate bond villain at this point he's he's overtaken blofeld in the in the villainous stakes with the with his his lies and his treachery so i'm going to say straight away that that okay. one's false i think the other one that's false is the timothy dalton roger moore statement and i believe they may have been considered or may have been thought of for the role but i don't think either of them were actually offered the role so i'm going to say that one is also false and i'm going to say the the final steam was reshot because bond doesn't cry is a true fact and i'm going to say that q calling james bond james as opposed to 007 um is one of the few times that happens and, and as soon as you said it it brought to mind the phrase pay attention 007 
which I think Hugh says repeatedly throughout. So, and you know, when we talked about the quotes earlier, we did mention that he calls him James. So, I'm going to say it goes true, true, false, false. Okay. So, starting from the last statement, my granddad, that is correct. Um, yeah, Cretin, you were right, Andy. My granddad didn't help to build his Gloria. He did work in Switzerland, but not at that time. And he's not a builder. So, Timothy Dalton and Roger Moore were both offered the role of James Bond in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but both turned it down. Is, in fact, correct, as in... You were wrong. <laughs> okay, so two are correct, but only one's correct. <laughs> I need to rephrase how I do this. But basically, Timothy Dalton turned it down because he said he was too young for the role and Roger Moore had was already committed to something else. So the timings were um, not quite right. I think I'd read that about Roger Moore, but I, yeah, the Dalton thing, I didn't know if he was just kind of yeah. on a short list as opposed to actually offered the role. The other one that is incorrect, and you are incorrect, is this is one of the few times that Q calls Bond by his name, first name. This is, in fact, the only time he calls Bond by James. So as you said, he does tend to call him 007. So a bit of wordplay there, you know. It is the only time that Bond, um, Q calls Bond um, James. And you're right. So in terms of the original take in the final scene, Bond did cry. So George Lazenby did cry. But the director didn't like it and made George Lazenby reshoot that scene. But they actually only shot two times that scene and they caught it on the, the one that they used in the film the second time. So, you know, that was... um. Well done there by George Lazenby in terms of nailing that scene. So, Andy, you have got one out of two on that one, or would you say two out of four? Depends how you look at it. Either way, you got one one. I would say that's a, a moral victory for me <laughs> and, a, and a technical victory for you. You've got me on a technicality there. This, is, this would be one I'd refer to the stewards. VAR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that is the, the quiz. So, Andy, do you want the honour of introducing our next new section of the podcast? Yeah, this is going to be either the start of a brilliant stand-up career for, for one or both of us, or this is going to be the end of the podcast, as you know it. Um, but I'd like to tell you a joke, if I may. But brace yourselves for this one. Go for it, Andy. I'm, I'm ready. James Bond is fast asleep in bed when suddenly there is an earthquake. He's shaken, but not stirred. I liked it. I liked it. When I told the missus that joke, I thought it was funny. It did make me laugh and the missus just rolled her eyes. Yes, we are going to continue the joke theme. We're going to, we're going to keep it um, as a James Bond theme for the remaining 20 episodes, isn't it? Isn't it? And is it 20? 19 after this one, 20 including this one. Yeah, so we haven't done it for the first five. For the listeners now, a little bonus, isn't it? We've, we've added in. We're growing up. We're evolving as as hosts. We can even maybe later on in the series we'll we'll insert either a laugh track or a tumbleweed. Maybe we won't do that, but in my head we could. <laughs> yes. So the the next bit, which is one of my favourites, Andy, is the rankings in terms of what where, where we rank them. So Andy, if I pick up the 
the first few um, bits. So, you know, our regular listeners will know. So what we do is basically we, we rank and rate each of the films as we watch them. So in terms of one time, so um, just before I start, actually, you can check all this out on our website. We've got all this on our website and we update it each week as um, we release our episodes. So one time, as Andy mentioned, this is the longest film we've in the James Bond franchise, two hours, 22 minutes. And Andy, you mentioned it actually earlier that it didn't feel like two hours, 22 minutes. It kind of flew by. So some films are overly long, but this one didn't feel like it. And it's the only second film so far that breaks the two hour mark. Yeah, completely agree. It was, it was flown by. Yeah. So in terms of kill count, so Andy um, mentioned earlier, obviously, that Bond only kills five times. So we're only counting, you know, Bond kills. We're not counting any of the henchman kills or uh, Bond associate kills. So, you know, it's five times. This is the second lowest in terms of Bond kills. So you only live twice, which is last week's episode, was the, the high point. So that was 21 kills. And, you know, Jules Lazenby's entry comes in second from bottom. So only dot to know with four kills. So what we said um, last week was we're going to introduce kill counts by actor. So at the moment, obviously, Sean Connery, you know, he's got five films on Jaws, Lays and Bass. So at the moment, the first five films for Sean Connery, he's done 65 kills, Andy, across those five movies. And that is an average of 13 kills per movie, which which isn't bad, is it? That's pretty good going. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're um, you know, if you know, we're talking about Bond getting flexi time and paying a half if he's gonna get any kind of bonuses per kill. That that is pretty good going. Um, but Lord George Lazenby, you know, one movie, he's done five kills. So in terms of our ratings and rankings, Sean Connery's number one and Lazenby's number two. Andy, do you want to pick up the next couple of slides? Monitoring the the martinis, a staple of, of the Bond films. And for the fourth film out of six, we do have an appearance of a martini you know, for for Bond. And speaking of staples of the film, introducing himself as Bond, James Bond. For only the third time in six, so it's only a 50-50 result at the minute, he introduces himself as such. But it's the quickest one so far. It's within the first four minutes, 25 seconds. I will move swiftly on to hat throwing and hat wearing, which is a yes on both counts. Uh, not only to the throwing... So the hat stand when he's in MI6, but also throws his hat to Money Penny at the wedding as well. So uh, double points there for, for Mr. Lazenby on the hat throwing. I will finish up on Felix Leiter, who does not make an appearance this time round. So no no appearance for Felix Leiter. So so far he's, in a, he's appeared in three out of six. Jay, do you want to start with some Bond girl rankings and ratings? So in terms of our rankings for the Bond so um, I think this is a bit of a hot topic, really, when you think about the, the Bond franchise. We have had six films so far, and we have counted 23 Bond girls. Like we said, you know, last week's episode, there's too many now to kind of go through per podcast. So what we're going to do is just talk about where the entry is from this film. And as Andy mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we've got three, we've got Tracy, we've got Nancy, and we've got Ruby. So in terms of my rankings, Andy, I put Tracy in straight in at number one, displacing Pussy Galore. Pussy Galore is now my number two. So Tracy's gone in at number one. And just before I kind of pass over to you, I've then ranked Nancy at 21, 
And then Ruby, unfortunately, not for me, but for her, goes in at 23. So bottom of the table. And my justification for that was it was like listening to Freddie Flintoff in a James Bond film, you know, because she had a very heavy Lancashire accent and also her hair just didn't do it for me. Whereas Nancy, only two places um, above her, but... For me, I couldn't score any higher because she was barely in it, you know, in terms of Nancy. So I think that warranted two entries in the bottom three. And my justification for putting in Tracy as number one was this is the Bond girl that made Bond marry, you know, get into marriage. And I liked that she was headstrong. She was more than a match for Bond. I think physically, you know, she's attractive but also she's that strong personality and the, the interaction kind of just put her in of pussy galore is why I put her in at number one. What did you have? That's, that's very interesting. So I'm, I'm going to start with kind of the relegation places, I guess. I've got Nancy in at 21, like you. Nothing particularly wrong with Nancy or unlikable, just kind of a bit of an afterthought, certainly not as prominent as Ruby and didn't really have an impact on me as, as a viewer. Uh, I've got Ruby slightly higher. I've got her at 19, so she's you know she's close to relegation, but she's just about scraping through for another season as things stand. The Lancashire accent, very noticeable, very thick, uh, very Coronation Street, you might say, or indeed you might say like Freddie Flintoff in a Bond film, uh, which is uh, a line that's going to stay with me for a while. And I've got Tracy in at number three. She's my bronze medal Bond girl as things stand, so just below Pussy Galore in two and Tatiana in one. Uh, very, very strong Bond girl in terms of headstrong, very attractive. And you know, like you said, if you can make James Bond want to marry you, then you've got to be doing something right. But uh, for me, just slightly below Pussy Galore and Tatiana, um, in my personal opinion. But she's she's going to be in the mix come end of the season for Champions League places in the, in the current standings. Yeah, and I think people that look on their website will kind of see, you know, in terms of our other rankings, Andy, I think ours are quite similar. Whereas here, we've obviously got very different tastes, except for our top three. Our top three are the same, but just in different order. Below the top three is when you start getting the the differences, I think. Yeah, we like what we like, and then we argue over what we don't. Yes, yes. So let me pick up theme songs then, and um, Andy, you want to pick up the other bit. So theme songs, Andy, I must admit, I put on a Majesty's Secret Service. So this is obviously, we're not counting the Louis Armstrong song as a theme song because it, it's a secondary song. So unfortunately, I'm, you know, I don't think we can include it, Andy, in this. So I've put the, the latest theme song in at number four. So just below You Only Live Twice by Nancy Sinatra from You Only Live Twice, obviously. Uh, but just above um, the Doctor No James Bond theme song by Monty Norman and, and John Barry. So what about you? The Louis Armstrong song would have gone straight at the top for me because I think it's a fantastic song. But, but like you said, it, it's disqualified from this because it is a secondary song. It's a featured song. It's not a title song. So the... The theme for this goes on at the bottom for me. It's, it's another instrumental theme, as as is Dr. No, but I felt it was just the weaker of the two, so it goes in last place as things stand. Interesting, Andy. And interesting that you said you would have put Louis Armstrong in at number one because, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it would definitely be in the top two. 
Um, just thinking whether it would have dislodged Shirley Bass's Goldfinger, who we've both gotten at number one. But I suppose the argument is mute because it's a secondary theme. Indeed, what could have been? And obviously with the theme song comes the opening credits. Um, so in this instance, we've got the silhouettes of the ladies. We've got the hourglass, which symbolise in the passage of time. We've got the, the clips from the previous Bond films. Uh, I quite like this. I've got this in at number three, just below Goldfinger. And then obviously my, my leader is Thunderball. But I thought it was a very strong opening title sequence. So so third place is, is not too shabby. How about you? Yeah, definitely, Andy. I think for me, uh, I just did one better there with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I'll pull it in at number two. So just below Goldfinger. My personal favorite is Goldfinger. And like, you know, we touched on at the beginning that this was very similar in terms of the, the throwbacks, you know, that we had in the Goldfinger movies, Goldfinger movie, in terms of the first three movies. It's the same, but I think it just fell short because obviously in Goldfinger, you've got the, the gold ladies and the, um, projected images so it was number two for for me great stuff uh let's move on to villains so as we've discussed previously we've got blofeld multiple times because we've got different instances of of blofeld in the different films so it's it's the impact that that character has on the film not the character as a whole so as as things stand we've got 13 villains in the rankings i've got blofeld in at six and i've got irma bunt in at ten so kind of middle of the, the table for me. And I've got two of the four we've had Blofeld instances so far higher than Her Majesty's Secret Service. So this is the third of fourth. I thought Blofeld in You Only Live Twice was the strongest instance we've seen of Blofeld, although a very, as we discussed, a very different portrayal of the character. But I thought that was the strongest version and just below the, the two villains from Goldfinger. Irma Bunt towards the bottom of the list like i said in in 10 out of 13 not a great deal to say about her as a villain almost a henchwoman you might say clearly just taking orders quite one-dimensional in some ways um it was just kind of a rule with an iron fist shout at people type approach so there's not really a great deal of dimension to her as a character but i thought blofeld physically imposing but just didn't feel like a typical Blofeld portrayal for me so it just fell a little bit short how about you because I think you've got some differing opinions yeah it's interesting now Andy because if I touch on Irma first I put her in at number seven so that is a couple of places yeah, so you've got her in at number 10 the reason I put her in at number seven was so that's middle of the pack out of the 13 was that she killed Bond's wife you've got to give her some credit there she was very strict with the angels of death as well she was like a headmistress a very head, strict headmistress at, a, at an all-girls school is a kind of impression that I got um, so I put her in, in middle of the pack but just below Rosa Klebb because Rosa Klebb I did like in the from what she would love with the old poison tip you know knife in the shoe so she's just you know below Rosa now Interestingly, I put Blofeld in at number two, and that was again. I so number three is Blofeld from You Only Live Twice, which I know you put higher up than on a Majesty's Secret Service. And I did think about this a bit, but I just felt was if I was in Bond's situation, 
who would I find more intimidating if I was going up against? And on a Majesty's Secret Service, if we remove the, you know, the whole thing that you can't hold a cigarette correctly, I think he is more intimidating. He's more muscular. He's also, I've, this must be the film that he appears more in. You know, he has more scenes. So that that is why it kind of um, swan it for me because in, in You Only Live Twice, he's obviously, that's the first time we, we had the um, full shot of him. You know, we see him, um, you know, his full face. But he, he's not in it a lot. He's in it near the end, isn't he, in You Only Live Twice? Whereas on his Majesty's Secret Service, he, you know, once Bond gets to his um, Gloria in Switzerland. He's in it quite a lot, isn't he? So that's why I, I, I pull him in number two. So in terms of the rankings, we've both got Goldfinger's number one. And then, you know, when we start moving down, we have got those differences. So yeah, it's interesting, you know. Yeah, you make you make a fair point, I think, for for the five, well, not he's not in all five Connery films, but in the Connery films that he appears, he is somewhat of a background character. You only live twice I really enjoyed because that's when he would kind of, came more to the forefront and you saw more of his influence this this one like you said he's front and center he is the focal point of of the villainous pack as it were as opposed to pulling the strings in the background so i would agree with your point that he's more intimidating from a physical perspective but i think what i liked about previous portrayals is that he was more manipulative in the background so that's why i've got the the difference in ranking but it's a, it's a good point you make he's He's certainly more of a focal point in this film on screen and physically imposing in those in those two scenarios. Yeah, it'd be interesting once we move on to other films where Blofeld also makes appearances, um, where where we rank them. Because from memory, I think we've probably peaked now with Blofeld. It'd be interesting, you know, I don't remember a lot of the um, Roger Moore films. I think, you know, in terms of character ranking, I think we've probably had the the two strongest actors that have played him from memory. That might change, you know, when we start, you know, re-watching the, the other ones in the series. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, let's move on to to the main event, which is the movie rankings. We talked about the, the ratings that we gave earlier on. Uh, so I gave this 7 out of 10, which is on par with from Russia With Love, but I've slightly preferred this one. So this so far comes in at second place. For me of the six uh, goldfinger still stands head and shoulders above above the rest of that it was just a phenomenal bond film but this surprisingly came in at number two for me um and i wasn't expecting it to when i was when i'm thinking of my earlier memories of bond and comparing connery with lazenby i didn't expect lazenby to fare quite so well but i think it was a very strong outing overall with a few, you know, a few flaws here and there which we've talked about but i think a very solid outing and a shame we didn't get to see more of him really so seven out of ten and second in the rankings for me do you want to just cover your rating and ranking again you know as we said earlier um i had eight out of ten so this was this was difficult andy because i was thinking you know from Russia we love i've given eight out of ten as we said before we're not having anyone in joint orders so even if a score is the same we're going to make a clear distinction between you know the places and i was doing an hour about this and i have moved them around you know in my head and and also on paper so i've actually done the same with you andy you know it is in at number two I did score it slightly higher, so 8 out of 10, 
And you know where you've got a two-point difference between your number one film, Goldfinger, and then your second place um, film. I've only got one out of 10. For me, it was very close to Goldfinger, if I'm honest. But same with From Russia We Love. Those three films at the moment have, have really stood out compared to um, the other ones in the series. Yeah, I mean, we, it's interesting. Although we've got slight differences in the score, we've got the exact same order for all six films so far. So let's see if and when that trend is broken. Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think it will be, if I'm honest, at some point. I think it's it's um, I think it's a bit of a coincidence. I- I'd be interested to see if people that are doing the same exercise that we are have the same order. Like, you know, like I said earlier, I'm quite generous in my scoring. And I think I said it in a previous episode, I might kind of get a bit stuck once we start getting other good films and try to slot them in, where you've kind of got um, like a two-point gap there that you can kind of play around with. I wonder if I'm going to struggle then, but... Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if other people do you know, the same kind of exercise um, when they're listening along, whether they're going to have the same order as us, but different scoring, or their orders are going to be completely out. You know, it's, it's obviously, it's an art form. It's subjective, isn't it? There's no right or wrong, so. Indeed. And when we're talking about the films, obviously we've got to talk about the actors. So we are going to rank movies by actor. We can't really do that for Lazen Movie because it's one, so it's the best movie of the Bond franchise that he's ever done. It's also the worst because it's the only one. So it's kind of a, a mute point. But I think what's interesting at this point, and we may be a little bit unfair to do this now because we've still got one more Connery entry to view, but where would you rank Connery versus Lazenby so far now we've rewatched them? I personally, so in terms of the actors, I've ranked Sean Connery number one and Jules Lazenby number two. Even, you know, the next film that we watch isn't going to change that order. For me, if George Lazenby was in more films, then that might change if he had more of a go at it. Um, Like we said, you know, this is his first film acting role and I think he'd done very well. I'm intrigued to see how different our predetermined list will be having now rewatched the George Lazenby film compared to other actors once we get on to future episodes. What about you, Andy? Where have you got old Sean Connery and George? Uh, same. Uh, and uh, the same point you made in terms of the the predetermined ranking that we gave them. And I think what's interesting is we've both gone Connery as the best Bond actor so far, and I'm not in any doubt about that. But in terms of the films, the best one we've seen is a Connery, but then Lazenby is better than four of the five we've seen so far. And I think that's probably more indicative of the films as opposed to the performance of the actor. I think Lazenby needed more time in the Bond role to be truly ranked against Connery uh, to see whether he, you know, he could hold up to that standard. So a, a very good, solid debut performance, but unfortunately we never got the chance to, to see him take it on any further. So Connery, partly because he's more established, but also I think even in the films that were more disappointing his presence as a bond actor i felt was stronger so i'm um, i'm keeping connery at number one for now brilliant yeah no i i agree with what you said there andy it's yeah it's interesting that george lazenbury's movie has come in second but it's we're looking at it as a collective and because um sean connery has obviously done five strong films it, it does offset um the one and i suppose like what you've touched on 
um, in terms of the, the film is very strong anyway. So if it was a Sean Connery film, I think it would have been just as good. Uh, it wouldn't have been any worse. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know if they would have dubbed Sean Connery with Jules Baker when he plays uh, Hillary. That would have been interesting. But yeah, so that's it now in terms of our rankings, isn't it, um, for this week's episode? So, Andy, is there anything you want to say before we, we finish this week's episode? I, I think it's been a... a- fascinating episode because it's Lazenby's one and only shot at it very enjoyable film surprisingly so and maybe he doesn't get the love he deserves that was what it will be my final thoughts on on George and and James uh, but next week we're back to more familiar times with the, the return of the master himself Sean Connery for one last go as James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever well that's this week's episode done we hope you enjoyed it Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to The Rating Room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room.